Hello, welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. This is Trent doing the intro this week because Robin is off in Stockholm or Copenhagen or somewhere like that with Professor Brian Cox doing some shows this week. And so I just want to quickly remind you that you can listen to all the past episodes of Book Shambles as well as check out reading lists and that from each of our guests at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. And that's also where you can make a donation to the show via PayPal or become a supporter on Patreon. We really appreciate everyone who supports the show. Uh, It helps us keep making it. And remember, Patreon supporters, each week one of you will win a box of random books from myself, Josie and Robin. And they're not just random books that we're getting rid of. They're, um, well, no, they are, but they're properly they're properly good books as well. I'm looking in the, the piles this week and I can see some Vonnegut. I can see some Sue Townsend, some Peter Carey in there. There's a, a Nick Offerman book. There's all sorts of stuff in there. So if you have a spare dollar or two, it is well worth signing up to that and we would really appreciate it. And just a final note about this episode, uh, we recorded this uh, again as part of our Australia and New Zealand Cosmic Shambles live tour and we didn't do this one in a studio, we did this in a... a a conference, a a board, a meeting room sort of thing uh, where at one of the hotels we were staying at. So occasionally you might hear uh, some people walking past or uh, outside they were setting up uh, an adjacent room for a big function that night. So apologies for that if it gets a little bit uh, background bangy at a, a couple of points. But I'm sure you will enjoy it anyway. So here is this week's episode with... Australian comedy legend Sean McAuliffe. Seen not seen that? that? Oh, it's I know brilliant. the film because Milligan's in it as well. Milligan's in it. He might be in it. Might be in the sloth sequence. I can't remember now, but he might be in sloth. And there's another one where uh, where it's Pride, I think, and the two cars have met. Uh, there's a, a narrow laneway in a in a, in, a, in a countryside, and they one neither refuse. They both refuse to back up. <laughs> It's, it's not bad. I think who it might be. It? Who wrote it? It's, it's two good writers, I think. It was, uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember, but I know it was produced by someone everyone hated. A producer. But it was <laughs> produced by someone. Yeah, anyway. Probably not the Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins is what the film was called. Huh. Yeah, I must have I've never seen it. It was one of those mid 70s films, mm. I think. And it's got quite a number, if you, if you love those British character actors of that period and maybe the decade before, it's just loaded with them. Yeah. Because we were talking, are we all going, by the way? Yeah, all all right. Should we do start. a beginning and then we'll just. Uh, is it my turn or yours? It's your turn because I did too. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Uh, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, this is from our very special Australian series, much like they did uh, Doctor in the House had an Australian series, uh, Love Thy Neighbour, and also a lot of the other, I have to admit, not so good ITV sitcoms were sent down to Australia. I believe uh, the Dick Emery show came down here as well. Oh, did it? No, yeah. I, didn't know. Oh. I don't know. I don't know what, whether that's a good or a bad show. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I haven't been able to read you yet, guys. <laughs> I, um, that, by I the way, I should just say my... that's our guest, who is Sean McAuliffe. Who How do you is, do? Is currently uh, in the middle of uh, your sitcom. Started off. But can I just quickly mention what it's it, it's about? Yes, please. It is. Uh, so you are the uh, the former uh, Prime Minister of Australia. Yes, we have a few uh, uh, recent ones, and uh, I'm, I'm a fictitious amalgam of. Uh, several of our most recent former uh, 
prime ministers. And uh, we've done one series already where he was simply ambling around the house and uh, this series he's running again because that's what happens in Australia. If, you, if you're an ex-prime minister, that's, that's, no, uh, that's no gate to you getting back into the game again. Because it's quite, I think it's quite interesting. It does seem talking to people that they, they don't generally fade into. No. The, you know, there was. There's nowhere know, to go. Well, There's nowhere they can't go. They can't go and join the UN. They can't. They can't do what Blair did and have an illustrious career thereafter, uh, and then be accused of war crimes. No, we, we they just hang around. So has it become more with the second series? Are you are you? taking from more people's lives. So didn't it time perfectly with... It wasn't far off when Tony Abbott got the boot, wasn't it, when your first series began? Yes, we were about to start publicity, so we were maybe two weeks away from going to air when, um, when Tony Abbott was, uh, decided to leave. Oh, sorry, decided to yes, leave. Yes, yeah. decided to leave. Yeah. Well, ten people thought that he shouldn't be Prime Minister. I think that was the vote. I think he was out by ten. So that's enough. And then he, he left, and uh, he's now a backbencher. That must have felt like an absolute godsend, publicity-wise. It was great, but everyone wanted to talk about the actual um, ousting of the Prime Minister, and then we're expecting the the show to be very political, which it wasn't at all. It was simply just about a guy without a job who had all the trappings of celebrity and uh, of a public figure, but none of the power and authority. So it was because I felt I just thought it was funny that in Australia. It is possible to pop down and into the former electorate of a prime minister and see him down the shops buying the milk and buying the eggs, and that was that. And everyone knows him, so that's. And it's a very egalitarian country, Australia. So everyone can go up and say hello, John, for John Howard, or they will eventually, maybe in a couple of months, say hello, Malcolm, for Malcolm Turnbull. It's a it's a quick turnaround. Yeah, it's time when we put this out, okay? Because now we've got something to. Uh, <laughs> so that's great. The uh, that was the yeah, last time I was here in in August. I got on a plane and there was Bob Hawke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, well. While we're on power, we should make sure that we do talk about your new book because your new book is not Australian politics; it's American politics, and you have, uh, I think, finally taken the the angle that has been lacking, which is to view uh, the history of uh, the most powerful office in America um, from the perspective of its furniture. Yes, I felt that was a hole in the market, and I was more than happy to cork it up. But I, I was fascinated by the, uh, by the President's desk that does sit in the Oval Office. And even as we speak, I'm sure, sitting on the edge of it is, uh, is Donald Trump making calls. But it, it, it was a gift, a gift from your Queen, Queen oh. Victoria, to, uh, to Rutherford Hayes many, many years ago, made from the, uh, the timbers of an old barkentine that had been lost in the Northwest Passage and recovered by... Uh, a seal hunter, I think, and they uh, restored it and returned it to Queen Victoria, who rather, I actually don't know, it was a lovely way to receive a gift, but then she just sort of cut a big desk-shaped hole in it and said, well, thank you, that's lovely, and here's a desk made out of it. And went to all this effort and time and money to restore the damn thing, and it was just cut up. I never think about Queen Victoria when it comes down to... um Anglo-American relations. I never really think about King George when they were having the war. I always think of it sort of from the American side because they had a more prominent democracy. Well, they won. Yes, they won. Sure. Well, you've been making the mistake of of dealing it from a human perspective as opposed to a plant perspective. Uh, (laughs) So this this is now... uh, Do you know what I mean? Like, I never think of Queen Victoria as involved politically, but of course she was. And of course she's probably thinking, I'll get him that desk, that'll shut him up. It did too. And there's a an exact replica of that desk, I think, in uh, in in one of her palaces. 
So presumably the, think, the thinking was that if Rutherford comes over uh, to the old country, he can uh, do his letters at that desk and it will be just like being at home in the Oval Office. But that hasn't that desk, incidentally. Oh, this is this is not funny. This is just true. I, I assume that's okay, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a very interesting point. Interesting point. Interesting is fine. Interesting. Um, uh, it wasn't always in the Oval Office. There were some presidents that actually didn't have it in the Oval Office. I've pretended that they did, but sometimes it was just relegated to an outer office, a presence table, or some sort of uh, sideboard sort of arrangement where you put your glasses on it. Like there were presidents who were too tall to sit at it. Huh. Apparently, Reagan didn't have it in there. Nixon didn't. Have have it in there. Was there a political reason? No, no, that was just too, the desk was too short. And then somebody, I think it was, I think it was George Bush uh, Senior, decided to chock it up, and which is a pretty uh, simple way of solving that problem of it being too too short. And Kennedy decided. Oh no, hang on, who was it? Who was the president who was in the wheelchair? Franklin Delano Roosevelt didn't like people looking at his legs, apparently, because you know they weren't the strongest of legs, weren't the most attractive of pins. So he had he arranged to have a little door made at the front of it which sadly wasn't installed until after his passing. But if you have a look at that very famous picture of John F. Kennedy Jr. looking out from under his father's desk, uh, the door is open. So it was around about that time that the door was finally installed. It took that long, apparently, for the door to go in. That's I've always found it fascinating with Roosevelt that he had to struggle to appear to walk when doing speeches. Mm. I mean, I mean that, that is, here he was, you know, an incredible, uh, I mean, probably in terms of fondly remembered American presidents, there aren't that many, mm. and very often it requires being cut down before you've actually done anything wrong uh, can be quite useful. Whereas, you know, Roosevelt, the idea of him, that short walk, which would have been agonising, placed mm. in, in metal leg braces... Yes. Yeah, and the, and the, of course the press were very sympathetic. The press understood they needed to convey that image. Of course, nowadays there'd be so many cameras and so mm. many people who weren't sympathetic to anybody, indeed, who ever lived, that they would be more than happy to show and hope that the president would fall over at some point so they could uh, put it on YouTube. Yeah, now, and now we've got the difference. Here was a guy struggling to walk when he really was almost had no ability mm. to, and now we have a president who can't even go down small inclines. Without a level of fear, which I know one shouldn't. Is that true? Not. Yeah, he has. A, I can't remember what the condition's called, but it means that both steps and uh, and and very slight slopes, or indeed any form of slope, which is apparently why he held Theresa May's hand. He's like a Dalek. Is that right? That's interesting. Maybe that's a psychological thing about he doesn't want to descend in any form. He doesn't want to be seen to be to be on some slippery slope. Doesn't want to be viewed as as, as enjoying or not enjoying a rake's progress or something. So maybe that's that. Maybe that explains the tie. Why the tie is so long is to distract us. He's got so. And the other, have you seen that? There's a lovely uh, um, clip, that, a series of clips that have gone up of the fact that when he sits down, very often he'll sit at the desk and there's all the people there, and he just feels that he has to do this, move things, yes, just, it's just move stuff. Okay. Just uh, that's that man's Coca-Cola. I'm just moving that. Uh, it's a very strange. I mean, as someone who has, you know, you've done a lot of, uh, of satirising both TV medium and political figures when you are placed in the situation that we're in now where, I mean I was thinking of things like Veep how mm. do you make Veep when, you know, oh, the wrong person the person who shouldn't be president is mm. president how do you make something like that when, every, I mean even when you mention Trump as president I still, my brain, very has this little moment of going, uh, no, no, that's real. And uh, it's, it's a very bizarre scenario. Yeah. I remember I was at university when, in, in uh, 84, which I think is when Reagan ascended to the throne. And I, we, were, we just couldn't believe that it had happened. We knew, of course, he was in the running. And we knew, of course, he had been uh, the governor of California. And, 
and was interested in politics, so it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that he could get here, but it just seemed very, very unlikely, and we were sort of quite gobsmacked by it. But this is even more astonishing, isn't it? I, I, I remember thinking, gee, the campaign, the primaries will be very, very amusing, that'll be entertaining, and really that's all one would get out of it from this distance watching it. So, uh, yes, there's a certain... There's a certain trick you have to play on yourself when you do talk about Trump as president to try and overcome the one-minute pause that it should be mm. given each mm. time it's mentioned. And uh, yes, but and then we are left with a problem because, of course, there are so many American, wonderful American satirists and comedians and writers and who are dealing with this every second of the day. In fact, anybody with a phone really is tweeting some joke or some putting together some meme. And it doesn't really leave much for the comedians, but those, those comedians who are up to the task, uh, like, say, Stephen Colbert, who seems to have turned... Colbert's incredible, isn't he? Well, he's turned, he's turned his, the, the, the old show of David Letterman sort of into a version of the Colbert Report, mm. so far as it needs to be, which is great. I'll, I'll, I'll happily applaud that. But over here in Australia, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but there's not much left to do. By the time, if you've got a weekly show, by the time it comes around, all the jokes have been done, or you feel they have, or versions of the jokes have been done, so you don't want to, you don't want to appear to have pinched anything. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it is actually quite difficult to, to newly mint something dealing with Trump. Mm. Do you find, I found, I found quite a lot that in the UK, a lot of people focus on Trump with all of their ire and don't focus on the United Kingdom, almost because they're like, this is so easy and clear-cut and I know I can do it. And they'd rather do that than be like, oh, what has Theresa May just done to our privacy laws? Oh, what does that mean? Is that, you know... And, and have you found that people kind of culturally really, really are focused on Trump at the expense of focusing on Australian politics? It might, yeah, I think so. And I think, I think it's an easy thing to laugh at and maybe maybe it's funnier to us because we're at that distance and maybe it's funny to the UK because it's at, at a distance you know he isn't in our own backyard mm. and when you're when you're close up with your own prime minister uh, it doesn't seem necessarily as funny immediately uh, perhaps that might be it um, it's all yes is that that Henri Bergson observation that uh, you do need a, what is it, a momentary anaesthesia of the heart in order to laugh. So you do need a little bit of distance from it, a little bit of disconnect from it. And maybe if he's not, out, if he's not actually your president, it is a lot funnier. And maybe it's just a bit more tragic when you're closer to it. I also think there's something very overt about Trump. I mean, one of the things that I think the UK used to be, I think it's losing it, was a tremendous ability uh, to commit terrible crimes, but at the same time appear to be very polite and not really have done anything at all. Mm. You had to go into the books to actually go, oh, hang on a minute, that's pretty much a genocide. Mm. Whereas with something like when, with Trump, or in fact Tony Abbott, I mean, there were moments watching the build-up to his election where you go those moments of just staring straight forward and not answering a question mm. and just where you would go this is disconcerting because this is it's akin but not far off actually the film Patrick I thought if, mm. if you remember that yes. uh, one of Robert Heltman's greatest performances is the Doctor in that this film? Patrick's about a, uh, a boy who is it's kind of a locked in syndrome isn't it yes, he's telekinesis in, yes he's in it he's in, effectively in some sort of coma but he's able to uh, to to shape events around him, huh. uh, and I think I think he forces uh, using his 
amazing powers of the mind, uh, Robert Heltman to eat a frog. That's right, he does. One of the big highlights of the film. So Robert Heltman, who was uh, so wonderful in, uh, in Robert Powell's The Red Shoes, is seen 40 years later eating a frog. That's what, I, that's what I've taken from the film. I'm sure there's more in it than that. But he did have, he has a wonderful, uh, I mean, the red shoes, and uh, that, that's another, well, which, in fact, before we get on... Michael Powell? Michael Powell. Michael Powell, yes. yeah. Robert Powell, of course, came over and did Harlequin and the Survivor, uh, which are both tip-top Australian movies. Jesus. I, I, I watched Harlequin the other day. Did you? You know, my, my wife, this is uh, completely uh, off the road here, but my, my wife has the novelisation of that film sitting in the bookshelf. So if you would like it, Robin, I'm more than happy to put it in the post. Oh, I'm, I, I love things like that. It's, uh, I mean, the, I was in a, a small English seaside town. I found the novelisation of you... Hawk the Slayer. Oh, really? Uh, which was a terrible British... Uh, one of those sword and sorcery films which has no budget whatsoever and a very small piece of woodland which must double as everyone. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm a huge... I mean, I'm very interested in, in those... That low-budget filmmaker, which, which I think Australia did brilliantly in the 70s. That's all we had. But it was so well done. There was. Sure. I'm always looking for the exploitation box sets, but they've all gone now. You can't. Exploitation. Exploitation. Yeah. Incredible. It's actually very. If you if you don't want to have to sit through the actual films, Josie, there's a very good sampler. I think which is which is called. In fact, it might even be on Netflix. So if you're in town for a little longer, I am. And you get home from you know you get home from the show, flip it on. It's only about an hour and a half. Quentin Tarantino, for some reason, mm. is a big fan of all things bad, and that includes uh, a lot of Australian films from the 1970s. I actually think it covers most Australian films, but he's chosen just the films of the 1970s. But you're probably right, because that, that's one of the... I think so few films are better than their trailer. It's called Not Quite Hollywood. Yes. And it's just... And it, it's the, the kind of biker movies and uh, a lot of sex movies. Yeah, well, they all seem to be virtual. They were bordering on porn anyway, or the soft porn of the, of the early 1970s. And there was a... a Yes, but the the documentary does descend into bickering and rancor. I think How? by the end of it, That's and the there's a kind of really big man who's a pornographer. I can't remember. He's being filmed in a Hawaiian shirt, basically mm. in some kind of strip club. Mm. Still very pleased with Alvin Purple rides again. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit. I wanted to bring this up just because you. I'm involved in the Slapstick Festival in the UK, and I know Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. He is one of uh, you. You. Revere Buster King, Absolutely, right? yes, yes. I, I've, I've managed over the years to dig up most of the films or what's left of the early, early ones as well. Uh, yes, I did stumble across, uh, in the old days, in the old, old days when Saturday matinee movies were on television instead of sport, uh, they would sometimes run the general. So I remember as a, well, I guess it might have been about eight or nine, uh, stumbling across the general, which I just thought was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And even at that young age, I could appreciate that the film... It's all about a train journey. Oh, I've seen it. I You've seen it. I'm that. sorry, Josie. I shouldn't have assumed you hadn't. Also, that film always freaks me out because he's on the Confederate side. Yes. So you're supposed to, a little part of you is supposed to be like, the heroes, the Confederacy. <laughs> like, not, not allowed. Not yeah, good. Exactly. And, but the, the great, the, the, structurally, it's such a one. I mean, aside from the individual gags in it, structurally, it's so wonderful because at exactly the halfway point of the film, he starts the journey again back to the other side. So it's the film. It's the film structurally in reverse. It's just such a, and I think all this is instinctive in Keaton. That's why he's just such a wonderful natural comic as well. But um, you can admire him as a technician as well. And uh, there, were, there were a whole bunch of um, reasons why I like Keaton. Uh, but I think that I think most of the reasons are are in that film. 
I think. He's just... Uh, and there's also something... I mean, I love Chaplin as well, but there's something a little needy about Chaplin. Keaton's lovable and Chaplin isn't. Like, not in the same way, I don't Not in the same way, no. Because Chaplin wants you to love him. I mean, he wants you to love him. And, and more often than not, you do because he's such a wonderful performer. But Keaton doesn't ask for us to love him. He doesn't sort of... He doesn't even say, look at me. He just... He says... He does most of his best work in the long shot, you know. Oh, so maybe I'm thinking of it the wrong way around. I've got my... If you'd have asked me to be like, tell me your description of Buster Keaton as before, I'd be like, it's full of humanity, really easy to love. But maybe I've just invented that. No, I think he's easy to love, easier to love for the reasons you've said, though, which is because he's not... You know, if someone comes up to you, yeah. you know, relationships very rarely start with someone being overly fussy and really showing that they adore you because then you know immediately there's a power balance. You know, there's yes. an imbalance there. Yeah. Whereas I think with Keith, I think he's, uh, it's like the, there's an anxiety, an existential, Cops, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen Cops, which is a fantastic chase sequence, um, no, and him haven't. trying to win over someone, and which basically ends with his own death. If you, if you, he, he gets away from the cops, and then he goes over to the woman who he's done all of this to impress, and she kind of goes, no, I found someone else. And so he just walks back into the police station, which is filled with angry policemen, who we can imagine are about to beat him to death. Yes, he's locked Chaplin them in. doesn't do that as much. No, he's locked, them into the, he's locked them into the police station and dusts it off, and I think he throws away the keys into a bin, and the girl rejects him, and then he, and he goes back to the bin, takes the key out. And I think you, you're the last moment of the film is a... Is an illustrated uh, tombstone. You're right. It with is, his yeah. with his hat on the corner, and quite a few films ended like that. Ended with the death. Even when he even when he got the girl, ha. the last shot would have been two two tombstones with their names on it. Nice. Yeah. Never forget that death is here. <laughs> well, I think I think that I think in a weird sort of way, and we're talking about films that were being made in the 1920s, is that he was familiar with the form enough to send it up so there's a little bit of modernity in it that maybe some of the you know you look at Harold Lloyd who's probably as inventive technically even more inventive in many ways because he, he seemed to own his own studio like um, Chaplin did um, and Keaton was a usually an employee employed by his father-in-law I think uh, and he he approached it like a worker I guess but he had a sort of um, a, probably a inherent disdain of being too sentimental I think that was probably part of his persona because he was you know the great stone face and that was how he was he was, all, he was a very beautiful looking man though and I think those I think he's I think he's absolutely he's, he's absolutely uh, beguiling mm. the way he looks in fact there's a book by Robert Benayoun called The Look of Buster Keaton which is just photographs of just how beautiful he is and uh, and not just the face, but also the the play of the body and the and it's just it's just a wonderful book if you can ever get your hands on it. Robert Benayoun, so you know, obviously French. But you also did a, a book about Jerry Lewis too, so you know, it balances out. Now you interviewed Jerry Lewis, didn't you? Haven't you? I, I did. I'm a big I'm a big. As a kid, I was a big Jerry Lewis fan, and and you know, I still have. As as when we're exposed to comics, usually when we're young, they we, we retain a love for them or a warmth for them even though perhaps our respect for their work is slightly different as we get older and we see the holes in it but um, uh, yes he came to Australia a few times and I assume he's come to the, come to the UK as well and not as much not actually as much. I think he, the, he came and did a big event 
there was an event on the Palladium put on by a comedian called Stephen Allen Green, uh, and it was kind of all built around the fact that Jerry Lewis was going to be on, and I right. think it had cost quite a lot, and it was for some charity or other. And then just before he went on, he said that he didn't feel very well, and uh, he had to go to hospital. Oh, this is quite recently, presumably. No, well, this was about 15 years oh, ago. Oh, really? Okay. But he kind of... And there's, there's many different rumours about oh, right. why he just suddenly vanished, because that's what I was interested in. I know you probably can't say too much, but because there was there was recently which... Uh, I can't remember which magazine it is has been doing that series of things where um, old performers, old yeah. writers talk about what it's like to be, to be old and, and creating. Oh, yeah, okay. and I think was it was Carl Reiner one of them? Yeah, loads of I watched it all. It was really interesting, um, and most of the people had you know like beatific, inspiring attitudes and really interesting things. And Jerry Lewis was just like, like ugh, can't be asked with this at all. So it's the most excruciating seven minutes that you He hated the guy right oh, from the start. From he wanted him to clear up. And then I've had a lot of people have kind of defended him and said, well, like, I heard various people saying, why are they just asking him about being old? And you go, well, the only thing I can presume is his PR person didn't say, he must be. we're doing an interview about what it's like to be old. Yeah. And his hate of this person is uh, is quite remarkable. Also, he says, well, "Oh, sorry." No, no. I was just going to say well, when when I interviewed him, and this was he was probably seventy two, so it's a while ago now. Uh, and there was a little press conference before I got to speak to him one on one, and a lot of the questions were, "When are you going to retire?" <laughs> so it may well be that he's been hearing this question for you know seventy, eighty, nine. He's ninety now, so yeah. for twenty years he's been hearing, "When are you going to retire? When are you going to give up? When are you going to not do it anymore?" And of course he. So he's basically like a woman comedian now the whole time. Yes, <laughs> yes. He's in yes. A, in Can you justify yourself? <laughs> What's it like being a novelty? <laughs> um, but I, it's very. What was really funny, but it, I find it really like full as a question and answer. As they said, "What was your favourite time?" of your life and he said when my partner was still alive when Dean Martin was still alive mm. but in this way that was like I feel like you could just watch that clip for two hours on loop mm. and still get things from it like it was fascinating to think because I, I had lots of sympathy for him because I feel like well yeah you're 90 most people you love are dead that's fucking awful yeah yeah. of course you're going to have short shrift for this person that is 70 years younger than you why would you care and I guess if, if your peak creative time was 1962 60. Now let, let's let's be fair. Let's give him another three years. If we think of, I don't know, I don't know, the Patsy or the Family Jewels, which you know is a is a fun film, 1965, and then it starts to, and then you, your popularity starts to go on the slide at that point. And if it's been sliding ever since, as a filmmaker, I think people still revere him as a celebrity. Uh, and as an elder statesman of comedy and as representative of the, of the old school, upfront, old performer, because, you know, he had his greatest success when he was in his 20s. You know, he's very, very young. He was nine years younger than Dean Martin. When they were at their, this is pre-Beatles, but there was that sort of Beatlemania love of them in, in the States in 1952 through to about 1956 when they split up. So he had, had that and he wasn't even 30. Uh, and then for you... For you to spend most of your life on the slide out of that, to no longer be the king anymore, I guess that must be a little bit galling. And if people don't want to sit down and talk to you, that's great. But if they don't even want to talk to you about the work, but they're talking to you about when are you going to retire? What's it like being old? And that's the thing they're interested in. That's, that was the thing that was irking him when I spoke to him in his 70s. When I spoke to him, of course, I was you know, a bit of a fanboy and was talking specifically about certain moments. And he sort of comes alive then. And he was talking about doing, doing 
And it was after his film career. He was doing a, um, a show at the Olympia in Paris. And, uh, you know, Jean-Luc Godard, Godard was there. And uh, apparently Chaplin was watching the show from up in the lighting box. And he found out about it after the show because Geraldine Chaplin was there and said, oh, you know, my father saw your show. And he said, what? You know, I can't believe... You know, he'd met him once before. I can't believe... And he said, well, he didn't want to... And so he brought, brought him down. He said, I didn't want to show you up. If I was there and they saw I was there, then, you know, there's a chance that they, I might have been the point of the, of the exercise and it would have thrown the, the focus off you. But once he was talking about those old-school... Uh, performances and those and Chaplin. Once he was talking about Chaplin, he was talking about meeting Stan Laurel. He he was really coming alive and leaning over, and and he he enjoyed that interview. I didn't have any problem with him at all. Whereas a lot of interviewers have, you know, he doesn't like people referring to notes when you're asking him a question. Wow. Uh, he he takes offence at that that you don't know it well enough to. Joyce, uh, you've got some notes there, but you've drawn mainly flowers. I've, yeah, no, I've, some flowers. <laughs> I've written not quite Hollywood or exploitation sample. Oh, sorry, there's things to do on the weekend. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that because the first thing obviously I'd want to know about, but I wouldn't ask. Because I think generally when you're talking to um, quite elderly entertainers, it is worthwhile starting off by saying, I saw that thing you did and it's fantastic. Mm. Because it, it does acknowledge that you have an interest. And I think maybe that was the problem with the way that, that Q&A was done. Sure. Was there wasn't a point which, first of all, kind of went, you've done some amazing things. Yeah. Yes. But I have to admit, I wouldn't care about when he's going to retire. It would be the day the clown cried. Yes. Which, do you know about the day no, the clown cried? No, please tell me. Um, it's talked about in Patton Oswalt. I don't know if you've read his book, Silver Screen Fiend. No. Which is great, because it's like when he was starting in L.A. as a comic... Every day was him going to see triple bills of classic movies. And he managed to get hold of a copy of The Day the Clown Cried, which is Jerry Lewis's uh, movie where he is the clown entertainer for children in a concentration camp. Oh, my God. And I believe God. entertains them on the way yes. to the uh, gas chamber. I think that, that might be the finale. I think, I think he's the, yes, he's definitely there to distract the children from the, uh, the horrors that are being inflicted on the parents. His, his name is Helmut Dork. Is the character's name? That feels a bit crass from the perspective of now. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, yes, yeah, so you think of Roberto Benigni's film mm. uh, "Life Is Beautiful," and I think also maybe Robin Williams had done a film called "Jacob the Lie," which might be a similar sort of situation where someone's trying to distract from from the horrors of what's going on. So it's got that as its theme. Mm. But uh, um, if this this fellow you're mentioning who who managed to see the film, I'd be very interested. Oh, he's never seen, he's only got the screenplay. Oh, the screenplay. He, he used to do readings with other comedians <laughs> uh, in the Largo in, in, in L.A. So the film's been buried? Uh, I was never, I don't think it was ever edited together completely. I think, I think the story is, is that Jerry Lewis has some of the negative and that, um, is that I think the, the original author's name is O'Brien. I think she still has, Denton and O'Brien, I think they're... They might have been a husband and wife, but anyway, they've, they've, they've got the rest of it, and they certainly have the rights to it, so they're not allowing it to be released. And I don't even think Lewis wants it to be released now. But why is that? Well, it, apparently it's so, it's so awful. I mean, the, uh, Harry Shearer did a, wrote a, a piece, um, I'm not sure which magazine it was, but he, he, managed to, he managed to see a bit of it anyway, if the thing hasn't been assembled, but there must be some working print somewhere. And he said that uh, Jerry Lewis is still, and this is 1972, I think, uh, still got the brill cream in the hair, and still uh, and, wear, and his shoes are all shiny. I mean, there's just sort of inconsistencies oh. between performer and character, which are evident all the way through. 
Jerry Lewis's film is he's playing sure. an unemployed circus clown. He's still wearing his, you know, Cartier watch, and it's just, you know, <laughs> which you'd sort of forgive if you're just there to watch the shtick. But um, yeah, you know, when I, it's I something sensitive, you the, don't really want someone. The day the clown cried, yes, was was asking for a different response. But it's very, it's sort of quite interesting that it um, happened at that stage of his career mm. because he, his career. His previous film before The Day the Clown Cried was um, Which Way to the Front, which was um, an, a, a war, another film set in the 40s, but he played a millionaire who um, looks like Joseph Kesselring, I think, a, general, a German general, so it's the old, you know, I'm going to dress up as the general, it's basically the great dictator, he's, sure. he's, he's going to play the Nazi. Uh, so he was dealing with those same themes in a very different way a year or two earlier. Very interesting fellow, very interesting fellow, but... Um, that seven-minute clip you speak of is, uh, you know, I hope he's not going to be remembered for that. Oh, no, definitely not. But it's really, it's, I found it really interesting because it just made me think about how long life is. Mm. And it made me think about how, of course, a 90-year-old person might not want to relate to a 20-year-old person who has no interest in them. You know, like, why would they? They're yeah, but why, why not get up and leave? Or why not mm. close it down? Mm. I mean, I, I think... Or why not say, I'd rather this wasn't published this hasn't worked he, he pretty much closes it down with every single answer yeah. I mean it's I, really remarkable that monosyllabic is almost I'm not sure it gets as far as a mono it's, uh, it's a really incredible well he maybe underestimates what goes viral these days and maybe that's something to do with his age he probably thought well if I give this guy nothing then it'll never get seen it'll never get used and of course that's not the case at all oh. so it becomes the reason to look at it and that's maybe just underestimating what people are fascinated by now I think it's kind of the antithesis of Mel Brooks, because Mel Brooks, everyone I know who ever sees Mel Brooks, and he, he was out in the UK not that long ago uh, doing a, a show at a theatre, which I think was almost entirely the tickets bought by comedians, mm. you know, and just goes on and just this energy and this delight, mm. and also at the same time an acknowledgement of how brilliant he is. He kind of, without arrogance... There are certain performers that you see and you go, that's a really good way of being, as opposed to the self-loathing, which is so easy to define you. To just go, I've done stuff and actually it is better than everyone else. And the reason everyone else did that was because I made that thing. And you still kind of want to cheer them up. (laughs) I mean, this is not exactly that, but when I went to see uh, the Pythons at the OT, and I'd never, ever seen them perform and obviously loved them my entire life. And at the end, it was like everyone was just giving them a lap of honour to say thanks for their wonderful work. And it felt like, even though kind of the show itself wasn't necessarily anything new, really, or, you know, like the show itself was a lot of things where I'd be like, I wouldn't have chosen this sketch. And, you know, but the ending was just like, your work has been amazing. Your work has been wonderful. That's all just thank you for 10 minutes. And you feel like you should do it for them. Yeah, definitely. That they deserve it because they've given that to you and now you're giving this to them and yes. it's a quite it's a great equalizer between audience and and I think that that's a really nice note to go out on because mm. I, I remember seeing Barry Humphreys last show and I know Barry Humphreys is still touring and still working but you know you know that's receding and it's a, it, it, that is a victory lap that's happening at the moment oh. with Dame Edna and, and all these other characters but he he writes in his wonderful memoirs about seeing an old um, going to the Tivoli and seeing an old comedian who everyone liked and there was a there was a sense that the audience was basically willing him through his act huh. this other comedian he'd, he'd, he'd stayed too long essentially he'd stayed too long doing his shows and his mother was saying oh you know he's not like he was and you know we used to, we used to absolutely love him and he was Humphreys 
remembering that, of course, with his phenomenal memory that he's got 70 years later, says, well, I want to make sure that I go out before I get to that stage. And I think when you hit what you're talking about with the pythons, that's about right. Mm. And we all know now with Terry Jones' mm. sad yeah. decline that, and in fact, it's a little evident in the O2 show. Well, I remember memory. he was reading things. Yeah. He read everything, pretty, every sketch. Yeah, it was, was all on the back. The Wizzo assortment was all on the back of the box. And indeed, the documentary that accompanies, oh, you can uh, see yeah. that he's, a, he's, I thought he's not well and, you know, and sure. They're so enough. loving to each other in that documentary. Yes. It's, it's, there's something I really remember Michael Palin, there's like a shot in it of Michael Palin being so tender with him. Yeah. And it's just, ah, oh, it's such a privilege to get to see it. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And even, even Cleese, you know, with his, you know, his, you know, reputation. Well, with his reputation and particularly with his reputation in terms of his relationship with Jones, couldn't have been better than to be rough with him as he yeah. was on, uh, on the Graham Norton show when, uh, when Terry said something like, uh, you know, he made a mistake about the number of pythons that there were. Yeah. And Cleese, and rather than sort of cosset him or to play down to him, he just said, oh, yes, stupid, cedar, old fool. You know, this is before, you know, we knew there was something wrong. But that's... You know, yeah. lovely too, because that's Cleese being Cleese and not and changing his act. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that is a beautiful thing, isn't it, of going... Because there are so many rumours about how they got on with each other. Mm. And uh, and the fact that Eric now goes around with, with John, you know, Cleese, <laughs> yes. I know they were over here. And, and I just think that's... A, and you do go, they've all got old enough to go, those of, you who, those of them who might have had, just going, fuck it, we're in our 70s. Mm. Any, any problems that we had in the past... It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, sure. So yeah. really, um, we've probably almost run out of time, and I wanted to ask you so many things about um, what did you when you were uh, growing up? What were the what were the books that first? I mean, we, was was it comedy? Because I know that you love things like Kenny Everett as well. I think, and yeah. who I think is remarkable and probably now quite underrated because yes. he, he could almost be forgotten. But were there, were there books as well? Were, there, were you a fan of, the, of all those kind of comedy spin-offs, the goodies books, the Python books? Well, I, I sort of, because I'm, I was born in 1962, so, and, and I tended to get my books that I, that I had as a child were inherited from a, an older cousin. So they were all out of date, effectively. So hmm. I, my terms of reference were, and there were lots of... Um, there were lots of British sort of anthology books. So, for example, uh, you know, they're all about they're all about what we call soccer, what you call football. So, they, they, I knew who Bobby Charlton was at school. No one else knew who he was, and so the references in those sorts of books fed into the radio. We didn't have a television, so I was listening to um, the Goon Show and uh, uh, Much Binding in the Marsh and all those sort of post-war shows that that came came out so I was informed by that to think and you, and you hear oh written by Spike Milligan oh Spike Milligan that's interesting and then oh there's a book uh, by Spike Milligan it was Pakun okay so I Pakun was the first book that I remember being given that I read uh, and laughing out loud at I mean it was such a I didn't know a book could do that I didn't know a book could make you laugh out loud and then of course you read I read more about Milligan I thought oh he's, he's a beachcomber what's beachcomber so I, I, he ended up being a bit of a primer for me and, I, and a sampler for all the other influences so I'd dig up I'd get you know um, the Grossmith Brothers uh, Diary of a Nobody and I'd get all these books that presumably were his influences and I read all those and, and of course you know Python's a great primer for the sued you know you end up sort of finding all about painters and philosophers and that sort of thing so but originally it was Milligan Milligan was the seems to be the touchstone for me 
to get to everybody else. And it sort of remains that way for a lot of comics, I think, of my age, is that he seemed to be the one who, uh, you know, he was a practitioner of it and he was also a student of it, whether mm. that was deliberate or not, he was a student of it. And then he became, in a way, a bit like you're describing Mel Brooks, he became, uh, he was lived a long enough life to be aware of his own influence and it was nice to see him do that, see him on Clive James looking mm. like a skeleton still being, <laughs> you know, being pretty funny. Well, so that, I, I love that thing where, in terms of the sued thing you were saying, because I, I think so many ideas, the first thing I knew about them was from comedy sketches. Like, mm. first yeah. thing I ever knew about the id was a Robin Williams recording from an album called mm. Reality, What a Concept, and he does this bit where he goes into the comedian's mind mm. and, and then, then just goes, release the id. <laughs> put the id back, put the id back. And I thought, what's an id? Yeah, and then you find out, and, and, mm. and I think that's because uh, your comedy. You know, when I, th I think I first saw your it was Channel Nine show that you did, what twelve, thirteen years yeah, ago? Yes, a long time ago. So you saw it, Robin? And yeah. Good. Do you know what? And I said to my friends who I was with, I went, I, "Why don't we have stuff like this in the UK? It's brilliant." And then two weeks later, they rang me up and they went, "That's been pulled." Because, <laughs> it, it, but it was that what I loved about it was. Sorry, what was the name of this show? It was called McAuliffe Tonight, which was oh, it's course, not yeah. quite as vain as it suggests because there were a number of shows called In Melbourne Tonight sure. in, in Australia and, no, I know. and sticking I... the word tonight on the back of something. But we had Barry Humphreys on was our first guest and he said to our producer, he said, oh, it was very good, but it won't last. Oh. <laughs> it was quite, and he was quite right. It was quite, we lasted 13 weeks. That's better than most it, it was yeah. British. <laughs> it kind of... You're very aware of the medium of playing around with that, of that, yeah. and and it had that great mix that I think some of the the comedians we talked about really have, which is clever, stupid, and stupid clever. Yeah, yeah look, yeah, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, my influence. I suppose I have ended up ended up as a lot of comics have of being your own straight man and your own your own stooge. So uh, uh, that idea of appearing to be smart, but showing yourself to be not smart or or reveling in being a, doing the more clownish things and that in itself is a reference to something else so you can either hopefully the audience laughs at it on one level or they can laugh at it on another level or enjoy it on both levels or maybe there's three levels or four levels to it i, I think that's a nice way to treat an audience so you know it's a bit like jacques tarty he just says well here, here's the frame and and you choose what to laugh at you know there's plenty going on that's really interesting because i've never thought about stand-up in terms of that like you're being your own straight man and like but it makes loads of sense especially when you're trying to speak about political things where you know sometimes you're really trying to make a serious point mm. and obviously the only way to do that in stand-up is you have to undermine it as well mm. and you know or sometimes you're trying to be very silly but then if you're also trying to make your show feel like it has a point or a meaning then you're always going to be kind of wrestling between those two things yeah yeah i mean and you can look at the sit-down stand-ups of people like stewart and particularly colbert colbert is a really good example of somebody who who is presenting the formality of the conservative pundit uh so he's he's built into his persona the straight man and mm. the and the stooges uh our attitude to the ludicrousness of that particular attitude and that that's an interesting thing for him to have to unpick in order to be a slightly more real person on the late show which he's mm. doing now and maybe for maybe you know maybe that takes a little bit more time than a couple of months when you've done a character for how long 10 years do, mm. you do, do I, that show yeah uh and the audience you know will maybe won't let him give it up so quickly but uh it's i find that fascinating to watch mm. too yeah 
Yeah, you're right. That bit. Can you see the point in which one is left? Is there a, a, a moment? It's almost like that moment, I suppose, where we can never quite work out when things go from being inanimate to actually life on Earth. And that bit of actually going, you can't quite define when it stops being Colbert the character. Yeah. I mean, it's that Preston. What's it? The Washington. Yes. Uh, for, uh, Washington Correspondence, or was uh, it Foreign Correspondence? Well, yeah, it was. I think it was the Washington one because, uh, yes, uh, given the content of it and given who was sitting at the dais with him. Uh, that's a that's worth that's what's that twelve minutes longer yeah. maybe maybe fifteen minutes, so Colbert doing that probably in the second year of his TV mm. show, uh, and I think they were expecting a completely different act. But he 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 in fact he roughed it up a little bit. You know he he, became, he was rougher as rougher on Bush in the, in that performance than he would have been on his TV show. It's yeah. an astonishing thing thing to watch, and the laughter is quite quite muted. Uh, but so it's therefore funnier for us. It's almost like he did it in order to show it on the show. I'm sure he maybe picked little bits out of it and showed it on the show. Uh, and the next year, you know who they got the next year in reaction to that? So George W. is still the president. They got Rich Little to come in and do the... Oh, really? You know, Hang on, who's Rich Little? Rich Little is a 1970s, I guess huh. that was from his heyday, uh, impers- uh, impressionist. So he, huh. he, he, do- he does Reagan and he, and he does, you know, old... She'll it's just very safe. safe. Yeah. It's really safe material. So he was up there doing, basically doing impressions of Reagan, and uh, and now Trump John just Moore. won't turn up to it anyway. No, you know, so he, <laughs> he he's learned his so. Well, it was like. Well, why would he? Why would he? Well, also, but it was so obviously like, oh, you're going to fire me? No, I've quit. You know, like, oh, you're going to dump me? No, I dump you. Like, it was so obvious, but it was like, yeah. actually, I'm not going to be man. It was like, wow, you've really played a blinder there. The strategy is. It was hilarious. The um, Rich Little, I think, also was the voice of David Niven in his last film. Yes, that's right. It's poor David Niven in the... Um, uh, they did a series of Pink Panther films without sellers after his death. Uh, one was called... I think it was the Trailer of the Pink Panther, both of which featured Jonah Lumley in different roles. Oh, you're right, yeah. So Trailer of the Pink Panther and Curse of the Pink Panther. And the Curse of the Pink Panther was the very, very last one. And Trailer of the Pink Panther was a sort of best of, in mm. effect. So they had people reminiscing about Sellers as Clouseau, or people reminiscing about Clouseau, so you would see scenes from the previous films. And because David Niven played the Phantom in the first film, Christopher Plummer played it in the second, but anyway, David Niven's back being the Phantom. But because he had uh, a, a disease which I think eventually took his life, his speech was very slurred. So without telling Niven, they got Rich Little into to dub to ADR his voice. And in fact, there's a Parkinson. I think it might be the last Parkinson interview of David Niven. Uh, you'll see him slurring and losing his memory. It's the start of that condition that, that took him away. So yeah, we're not not a, not a terribly not a nice note to go out on for poor old Niven. No, it's very. Uh, my dad was always. I remember him coming back furious once because he'd been in a taxi. And the taxi driver had a copy of The Sun on the front seat, and The Sun had managed to get a paparazzi shot of David Niven, extremely ill, right. in his garden in Switzerland. Oh, and you think, yeah, it's, it's always good to remind ourselves of the cruelty of uh, these industries sometimes. Mm. Um, who do you... Uh, who do you enjoy reading now? Do you find most of your work is spent actually that every book, however much you're enjoying it, is kind of research? That it's always. Yeah, uh, look, I, I enjoy reading uh, work that feeds whatever I'm doing, uh, whether it's a television thing or whether it's a, you know, if it's a book. I, I, it gives me an excuse. 
I don't think I'd be a very good student if I went back to university now. I'd not be very good because I just simply don't have the motivation for it. But if I'm if a subject interests me, like for example, I was quite intrigued about the president's desk, and 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 there was an Australian connection to it, which I won't go into now. But that was interesting. So reading up all about that was very satisfying, and made for some very boring dinner party conversation as a result. Uh, but in terms of reading humour, I still very much love that. I, mean, I love reading biography, and I, I'm still a sucker for any any old comedian's biography. I'm more than happy to to read that. And I reread a lot of stuff too. I, mean, I think the book I've reread the most is probably um, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, which is written by uh, Lewis. Roger, Roger Lewis. Lewis, yeah. Roger Lewis, which is actually an... It's actually a really, really interesting book, and it's it's not only fascinating just in terms of revealing the man's life, but it's also a really uh, effective um, primer on comedy as informed by the person's upbringing in life. And I always found it fascinating, for example, that Peter Sellers was not born Peter Sellers. He was born Richard Henry Sellers, and in fact what happened was he had a younger brother. Uh, well, well, sorry, it would have been an older brother. Uh, the firstborn of his parents died. His name was Peter Sellers, and he died quite young, like you know, six months old. And then Richard Henry Sellers comes along, and his mother Peg just calls him Peter. So you have a you that's ha- healthy, isn't that's it? That's pretty healthy. So he becomes Peter. He he is being a character. He is actually playing. I just find it such a irresistible key to the sort of life and, mm. and choices he made as a comedian later on to play all those characters um, something there's something incidentally that, that Richard Lewis, uh, Roger Lewis doesn't mention in the book but uh, in terms of drawing a link to it but yeah I, I just found that fascinating and he, he doesn't tell the story chronologically he just sort of just tells the person's life out of order and randomly much in the way that much in the way that our memories are sort of piled up in our head rather than uh, rather than in a, in a linear form but uh, that's probably the oddly enough that's the book I I reread the most, and I recently read Hugh Laurie's *The Gun Seller*, oh, too, yeah. which has been around for a while. I know that, so I'm still I'm still digging up stuff that it doesn't have to be new to me. It's, it doesn't have to be actually freshly published. It's just new to me because I haven't read it. *The Gun Seller* is kind of it's a John le Carre, yeah, kind of yeah, thing, but it's yeah. really good. And I'm I don't think he's written anything else. I don't think he he wrote anything. It's like think oh well, that's I've done that now. <laughs> But I'd like to. I'd like to read more. Well, now he's allowed to play the piano publicly and for money. I think that's all yeah. he wants to do, isn't it? It's like, kind of, I can do this now. Roger Lewis, I think, is a really... Because he's quite a misanthrope. If you ever read other stuff that he's... He wrote a very small book about Charles Hawtrey, which is almost sad, because you go, Sellers, this size of book. Yes. Charles Hawtrey can be summed up in this pamphlet. It's called... Uh, um, was it I Was Private Whittle? Or Private... And, and it's... <laughs> Huh. And, and he's a very there's a there's a great uh, oh, I've forgotten his name now he's a, he's a guy who was a Wes Butters who was a Radio One disc jockey so like a pop music di- uh, mm. uh, but as a very young man but also as a very young man and what he really wanted to do was write biographies of Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey mm. and he's and he's done this brilliant book called What's His Face which is the tragedy <laughs> of Charles Hawtrey yeah. where you just go and it was another relationship between him and his mum. Yeah, you know, like, like the Peter Sellers. That's Sanderson right. Yes, he ended up. Uh, yes, that's right. He ended up sort of just like, quite an alcoholic and looking after his mum and sending the, getting the minicab to come round and drop his brown ale off. A very sad, very sad story. And I think Roger Lewis also wrote. Uh, sorry, who wrote? Uh, who wrote? Um, uh, I have to edit this out. Um, no, this is exactly what we're looking for. Trying to think of, uh, <laughs> trying to think of his, uh, think of the name of the book. I can't remember the name of the book. Um, 
Okay, let's go back. Kubrick, Kubrick, violent film, very violent film. Anthony Burgess. Anthony Burgess. Okay, so Roger Lewis wrote a book about Anthony Burgess in which he's quite nasty about Anthony Burgess. I think, I think there was some sort of vague connection between the two of them and obviously went sour. Uh, Roger Lewis also wrote a book about uh, Olivier. There's been too many books written, by, written about Laurence Olivier, but this book is very thin as well. And Don't fall out with a biographer. No, no. Well, because um, the film, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, starring Geoffrey Rush, uh, I think I think Roger Lewis's book was optioned in order to, you know, use the content. and uh, and. Uh, yeah, that's what I've... I've seen that film, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, at the moment, what are you reading? At the moment, uh, everything's on... St- oh, hang on, no, no, I am reading. I'm re- reading uh, a book about Al Jolson, a book written by Michael Friedland, who writes a lot of those sort of celebrity, uh, celebrity biographies. But I find, I, do, I, f- I find his story quite fascinating, so I'm just, I'm just reading about the, uh, the moment very early on in the book. I think he's just, just arrived in America from uh, Latvia huh. or wherever he was. So uh, uh, talking about his mother's s- uh, special Sabbath wig... I didn't. I wasn't aware that there was this, that you could have a. I mean, I knew that I knew that wigs were worn, mm. but I certainly didn't know there was just one you wore on Sundays or Saturdays, I suppose. Sabbath wig. Probably the perfect because doesn't he pop up in La La Land briefly? Does he? Isn't there a little clip of Al Jolson? I think. Yeah, in that. Um, thank you very much uh, for. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm. I'm why your show hasn't yet been on in the UK? Has it? Hasn't been. No, I think that I've only ever had one show that's uh, in a in a sort of cobbled together form that that has been shown on the Paramount Comedy Channel, which I don't even know still exists, but a show that I did 20 years ago. Because uh, occasionally I, I run into comedians, especially during the Melbourne Comedy Festival, who say, oh, well, I remember your show from, from the Paramount Comedy Channel. But yeah. apart from that, I think it's the only thing... Was that the program? program? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a sketch program called the McCarla Program. Josie, yeah. I always put my name in the title. Good, you should. Otherwise, how can people know? That's right. It's That's why this is called Josie and Robin's uh, Book Shambles. <laughs> <laughs> We've realised that. Um, thank you very much for taking yeah, time. Oh, no, it's been lovely. filming break. And, uh, um, yeah, there's so many more questions. Yeah. For, well, especially when you get on comedians' biographies. Mm. When you, there's certain things where you go, I wish I'd never read that because that's not as funny as it used to be when you watch it. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We well, don't read Norman Wisdom's PA's book. She's written a book about Norman. Uh, in fact, probably don't even read any book about Norman Wisdom. Why was he an asshole? Well, no, <laughs> no, no, he was. He was, he was lovely, but he, he said he 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 went senile. So there's a lot of oh, a lot of sadness at the end there. So a bit like reading about Mickey. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters. And some of those Patreon supporters are Michael Platt, Helen Lodge, Willie Brown, Andrew McDonald, Vanessa Fury, Harvey Orton, Brian White, Glassy Witch, Crawford Skulls, Kyle Burley, and the book winner of this week is Zoe Corrin. And uh, this, after this series as well, or indeed during this series, we will uh, be increasing the amount of specials for Patreon-only supporters. So there are going to be coming up longer episodes with guests, especially for Patreon supporters. Thank you, Robin, and congratulations to our winner this week. You can send us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com with uh, your address and obviously letting us know that you're this week's winner and we will get your prize out to you. 
And as Sean mentioned in the episode, unfortunately, most of his work isn't available in the UK, if that's where you're listening to this from. But you will find lots of his stuff on YouTube if you want to check that out. And while you're there, head to youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles, where you'll find all of our video content, lots of stuff there from Robin and Brian's uh, recent tour, the Chaos of Delight web series, which Josie's a part of, and all the other stuff from the Cosmic Shambles network. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week with... um, I can't remember who the guest is off the top of my head, so that will be a surprise for all of us. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.